What is this? What is this? A press conference? Is this not working? Are you serious? <laughs> is there a lapel? So, ABC, which one? Which, which camera do I look into while well, you take the snapshot? Yeah, right? My goodness. All right. This is awkward. Gentlemen, excuse this. More distracting for me than it is for you. All right. Uh, <laughs> Genesis 18. In Jeremiah chapter 6, um, of course, Jeremiah was um, a prophet that was sent by God in, in the days that um, in Israel were much like the days that we live in now. The, the, the nation was facing judgment. Um, by and large, they were apostate. They had turned away from God. And uh, Jeremiah was sent in a time when the hearts of men were so hard that no one listened to him. And there were very few converts. But um, in chapter 6, he, he says something that resonates throughout every age. He says this um, in the name of the Lord. He says, thus says the Lord. He says, ask ye for the old paths that lead to life. And he says, uh, he says stop in the way. Stand in the way. Or just stop for a minute and look around and see. And ask for the old paths that lead to life. And he says, you're going to find rest for your souls. And, uh, you know, that the voice of that resonates with me um, constantly to think about what that means when God says to ask for the old paths. In the New Testament book of Jude, uh, Jude says that the purpose that of his writing, he says, was to contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. And that's what he's talking about is the old path. It's the path uh, that God has called men onto from the beginning. And the, the benefit of studying Abram's life is that he's the one that blazed the trail that made the old path what it was. He's the father of faith, as it says uh, in, in Romans chapter 4. And so um, as we look at his life, what we gain above everything else is we gain a, an example or a picture, a portrait of what the old path is. Now, as it concerns God's work in the, the life of a man, um, or the, the process of redemption, of God's sanctifying us and, and growing us up in the faith, uh, the Bible really speaks of um, three different stages, if you would, uh, of Christian development or progress on the path, however you want to look at it. Um, the first, of course, is infancy. And it's just like an unto being born again, just like a baby uh, goes from developing in the womb and it's in total darkness. I mean, it's, 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 there's, no, there's no, no frame of reference, there's no life, there's no air, there's no senses. You can't see, it can't hear, it can't smell, it can't feel anything. It's just there, it's in the womb. It's something, something's there, but there's no life. But the moment that that baby passes out of the womb and into uh, reality, all of a sudden it just enters into this whole world where it's overwhelmed with sense. All of a sudden it can see, it can smell, it can breathe, it can taste, it can feel, it can cry. And there's, I mean, you know, obviously I'm not saying that, that, that in the womb there's no life. I think you get the point is that there's a passage that happens where all of a sudden that there's just this world. And the whole first segment of this, this life now is discovery. It's figuring out, like, what is this? What is my hand? What is it? How does it feel? And what is this sense? What is this that I smell? And what is this that I see? Why am I feeling this way? And, and, and who are you? And what is a tree? And why is that light? And I, I mean, it's just this whole sense of, like, I've just been brought into this whole world, but I have no idea what it is. And spiritually, we all come into that. We're born again of the Spirit of God. And that which wasn't, now all of a sudden is. There's a sense. There's a conviction. There's a conscience. There's a word. There's a spirit. There's a conviction. There's an unction. There's something inside that was never there before. There's a truth. There's a right and a wrong. There's a straight and narrow and there's a broad and diverse. And there's all of these things uh, that we never had any concept of, even though we were alive. And it's being born again. But that's that infant stage of our Christian walk, where we're just learning, we're growing, we're figuring it all out. But then the Bible speaks of a second stage, and the Bible calls that being a child. 
Paul said it in Ephesians chapter 4 as he's encouraging them to grow. And he says, I'm urging you that you would no longer be children. And then he describes what that is. He says, tossed to and fro and carried around by every wind of doctrine. By everything that you hear, everyone teach. By every message that says something that's persuasive. He's saying you need to grow beyond being persuaded so easily and come to a place of stability, uh, a place of, uh, of understanding, and a place of wisdom, a place of strength. And so there's that childhood uh, in the faith, wherein, you know, we're, we're past the beginning. We understand a couple of things, but yet we can so easily be deceived, just like an adolescent, just like a child will, you know, the parent will say, listen, you need to save your money. And the child goes, yeah, right, sure. And, and they don't, they could care less what the parent says, or you need to guard your heart and not give yourself to, to this or to that thing, or watch out for this. And the adolescent just won't hear it. They're just going to do what they're going to do. And then, and there's a, there's a spiritual equivalent. There's a time of our walk with the Lord that we're kind of like that. You know, we, we, we hear the word of faith thing, maybe. You know, name it and claim it. And we go, yeah, I'm going I'm to try that. I'm going to do it. You know, and we hear the, the, the ancients, the sages saying, that's not the way, <laughs> you know. Uh, but, but we're like, well, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go for it. You know, we can kind of give ourselves to all of these different things or hyper grace. Well, there's no hell. You know, the God of love wouldn't have a hell. Why would that doesn't make sense to me? You know, and, and, and so we can go through these things where we're carried about by all of this. But then there's the third. There's what the Bible calls maturity, or it uses the words full age, or those that are full grown, uh, or those that are stable. In 1 John, it calls them fathers. He says, I've spoken unto you fathers because you have known. You know? and, and, th and that's the stage of our Christian walk where we come past infancy and past adolescence, and we come to a place of maturity and stability, a place of spiritual strength where we, we understand who God is and we've learned how to hear his voice and we've learned how to pray and we've learned how to cultivate the fruit of the spirit and there's a, a growth there's a steadiness in our walk and we're not floundering the roller coaster days are, are gone we're not up and down we can discern past all of that and and we're just walking with him we're allowing his purpose to unfold within our life and we're walking according to his plan and and that is ultimately where God wants to bring us now as we come to Genesis 18 that's where we're at in Abraham's uh, example to us, really, is he's moved past infancy. He's done going back and forth to Egypt, and uh, he's done trying to figure out and make God's plan for his own life. He's past adolescence, where he's, uh, you know, trying this thing or that thing, or, 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 or using Hagar to try to help God out, and, you know, floundering and all this, and he's at a point now where we meet him here, where there's a stability. He's not done, but he's stable. There's a strength. God has, has established him and his roots are fixed in the Lord. Now, the problem that, that, that many of us can face as we come into maturity in our faith is that we can think that we've arrived. We can think that, okay, well, I'm done now. Well, I've, I've gotten through a lot of that and I'm, I don't do that anymore. And, and what can happen is we can kind of go stagnant. We can coast spiritually. And that's a very dangerous thing because God never calls us to coast. He never tells us that we've arrived. He always tells us that we're to grow. And as long as he's got us on this earth, we should be growing closer to him. We should be growing deeper with him. We should be discovering his plan for our lives. There should be less of us and more of him. And that should just be constant, constant in our lives that we're pursuing God, knowing him more, hearing him better, learning of his ways. And that's what we see Abraham doing in our study uh, this morning. Now, another thing that's going on here at this segment of Abraham's life is that we see a contrast that's laid out for us in the scripture between two Christians. We're going to see Abraham, the one I just described, but then when we get to chapter 19 next week, we're going to see Lot. And there's a very clear contrast that the Holy Spirit gives us between the two men, both saved, one who's growing and stable, and the other who stops. And it's an incredible exhortation for us. But today we look at the stability of Abram and what God is doing in his life at this uh, point in it. And so it tells us in verse 1 of chapter 18. It says that the Lord appeared unto him 
in the plains of Mamre, and he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. And so uh, an, another episode, now that um, the covenant of circumcision has been given, uh, the promise that Isaac will come has been given in the past chapter. Uh, thir- the 13 wasted years are over now. And, and God is going to appear to Abram again. And the chapter now describes that appearance, what that was like. But I want you to notice also in verse 1, it tells us where Abram was. It tells, him, tells us that he, he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. And the reason why that's worthy of mention and worthy of our notice is that the tent is something that always accompanies Abram's life. The two things are the altar and the tent. Everywhere he goes, he builds an altar and he pitches a tent. The altar representing, of course, his relationship with heaven. It was a sacrifice, a sacrifice life. It was laid down. The tent represented his relationship with this world. And a tent speaks of that which is mobile, that which is passing through, that which is not planted or rooted in the place where it is lived. And that was Abram's life, is that he was a man who was not rooted on earth. His life was hidden in heaven. And so he's in the tent. Now, another reason why that's important is because when we get to chapter 19 and we see Lot, we're going to see that he was dwelling in the gate of Sodom. <laughs> he was involved in the government of wickedness. You know? And so, the, so for the purpose of contrast and just seeing who we're looking at here, we see Abram, characteristic of his character, in his tent. And it says that he lifted up his eyes and he looked. And lo, three men stood by him. And when he saw them... He ran to meet them from the tent door, and he bowed himself toward the ground. And he said, My Lord. So evidently, he knows exactly who this is. This is a capital L. (laughs) And he understands that this is not uh, someone just passing through from a foreign land, but that this is God uh, himself. And I don't know, he doesn't describe the appearance of it or how he knew that, but, but from what he said, he knew it. He said, If now I have found favor in your sight... Pass not away, I pray thee, from thy servant. One of the marks of a mature Christian is that when the presence of the Lord draws near, that is the thing that you never want to end. And that is what we see in Abram here. God draws near and he says, God, please don't pass by. I need you near me. He says, let a little water, I pray you, be fetched. And wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will fetch a morsel of bread and comfort you your hearts. And after that, you shall pass on. For therefore are you come to your servant. Notice that he sees himself as a servant of the Lord. And they said, so do as you have said. Now, here's the amazing thing about the relationship that Abraham has with God. Is that God has come to Abraham in a sense to serve him. That the whole purpose of this visit, this encounter, is that God is going to deliver a message, two messages, essentially, to Abram. And he's come for no other purpose than to tell him information that will be useful to him. God is actually serving Abraham in this visit. But yet, notice the posture of Abraham's heart is that he is a servant of the Lord. Is that he, he does not in any way look at himself as one who's entitled, but as one who is called to serve him. And so Abram hastened unto the tent, unto Sarah. And he said, make ready quickly three measures of fine meal, knead it and make cakes upon the hearth. And Abram ran unto the herd and he fetched a calf tender and good and he gave it unto a young man and he hasted to dress it. Again, you'll notice, I'll point it out for contrast, is when we get to Sodom, we don't even know where Lot's wife is. <laughs> I mean, when the angels come to visit them, she's nowhere to be found, you know, in the whole thing. Uh, but we see Sarah here serving. And so Abraham ran unto the herd, or I'm sorry, um, verse 8. And so he took butter and milk and the calf which he had dressed, and he set it before them. Now, worthy of mention, if they just read their Bible, they could have eliminated thousands of years of a kosher burden. (laughs) Because what we see here is we see Abram, the first Jew, serving God a meal with dairy and meat together. 
<laughs> you know, it just helps so much if you just read your Bible. <laughs> you can eliminate so much <laughs> unnecessary energy and effort. And so it says that he stood by them under the tree and they did eat. And they said unto him, now, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, behold, in the tent. Now, God has come to Abram to deliver to him two messages. And it's interesting to me that um, before he delivers any of the message, the first question that he asks Abram, the first concern that God has, is he says, where is your wife? Now, God already knows where his wife is. And God already knows that Abraham knows that he knows where his wife is because he just popped his head in the tent and he yelled, Sarah, fire up the stove, put on the bread. You know, so why is it that God asks now, where is your wife? And I believe it, it, it to be here for two reasons. Number one is because the message, the first message that he gives is, is going to directly concern Sarah. He's going to tell him that you're going to have a son. And this is part of, part of the plan that God has for Abram involves Sarah directly. And that's part of the reason. The other part of the reason is this, is that any time that we would expect or that anyone would expect that God would speak to them or communicate with them or move in their life or unfold his plan, it is absolutely essential that we be on the, the right page and the same page with our wives, that our wives be with us spiritually. In 1 Peter chapter 3, when Peter is talking to husbands and wives and he talks about the dynamics of Christian marriage and the importance of it and how it works, he gives a good six verses to, to, the, to the women and, and tells them, gives them a ton of instruction. I mean, really, six verses in the New Testament, you could write seven books on that, you know, and he, he just tells the women thing after thing about how to deal with the husbands. Then he gives one verse to the husbands, one verse. And he said, it's, it's almost hilarious if you really stop and look at what he says. He says, husbands, dwell with your wives according to knowledge. And that's it. <laughs> he says, dwell with, you say, what? That, that doesn't help. <laughs> what do you mean dwell with them according to knowledge? You know, where, where is, how, how does that even apply? What is it? What am I supposed to do? And God says, that's all I can do for you. <laughs> you know, really, that's all it is. He doesn't say dwell with them according to understanding because you can't. There is none. He doesn't say dwell with them according to wisdom because it won't work. There, is, there isn't any wisdom. He says, listen, what you know about your wife, dwell with her according to that. What do I know about my wife? I know she's nuts. <laughs> I know that, that, that there's no logic or reason. You know, she'll, she'll tell me to do something, and then she'll tell me not to do the same thing that she already told me to do, and it's completely contradictory. There's absolutely no sense in it. And God says, okay, you know that? Good. <laughs> now dwell with her according to that knowledge, <laughs> you know, in the whole thing. But then he goes on, and he says this, and here's why. Here's why it's important. And he's talking about harmony and keeping peace and unity in your marriage. So that your prayers are not hindered. In other words, if your relationship is not right with your wife, and if you're not on the same page with her spiritually, then that is going to directly affect your fellowship with God and your ability to hear his voice and his ability to unfold his plan within your life. You too are one. You're not two. You are one. And if there is a schism in the one, then that impedes God's movement and God's plan. And so God looks at Abram and before he gives him the next step, he says, how are things with your wife? Where is Sarah, your wife? And I wonder if God were to ask you that question or me that question right now, and he were to say, where is your wife? Where is your wife spiritually? Would we be able to even answer it? Where is your wife mentally? Where is your wife emotionally? Where is your wife in relation to you and your walk with me and your relationship with me? Does she even know about it? Where is she in it? And it is so essential that if we're going to be fruitful and productive in this world, that we be in harmony with our wives and that there be unity between us. And so God asks the question, where is Sarah, 
your wife. Well, it says in verse 10 that he said, now God, or he answers and he said, behold in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return unto thee according to the time of life. And lo, Sarah, your wife shall have a son. And Sarah heard it in the tent door, which was behind him. So she's there evidently out of sight because she thinks that this visitor does not see her and doesn't know that she is, is hearing what he is saying. And so it tells us in verse 11, parenthetically, now Abraham and Sarah were old and well stricken in age. And it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. And so the Bible declares plainly that she has already gone through menopause. There's no more monthly cycle. There's no more uh, egg there necessarily to be fertilized as it is with, you know, the, 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 the course of life. Romans chapter 4 tells us that Abram himself was past the age of fertility. It says in the, there, it says that he was as good as dead speaking of his ability to uh, procreate or bring forth children. And so both of these two now are past fertile age scientifically when God gives this word that they're going to conceive and that she's going to bear a son. And so therefore, which is one of those um, uh, terms that connects the previous to the present, therefore, because she knew that she was no longer able to have children, Sarah laughed within herself, saying, after I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? Now, the pleasure that she's speaking of there is not, you know, the pleasure that comes from um, conception, but rather the pleasure that would be the pleasure of every woman uh, in every age and generation, and that is the desire for children that was so greatly uh, held by Sarah and is so greatly held by any. But she laughs. Now, why does Sarah laugh here? Why is it that the, the, the reaction, the natural reaction to her hearing this thing is that she gives this, it says that she laughed within herself. So, so it wasn't like the hearty gut laugh, uh, you know, but she just, she gave one of these. And, and I think we all know that, that laugh because we've all laughed that laugh, right? What is this laugh that Sarah is laughing? This laugh is, first of all, it's the sarcastic irony of life laugh. It's the, I've been working for this and waiting for this my whole life, and now a week before I die, here it comes. <laughs> I've been waiting for my business to take off now for 30 years, and now I'm at the age of retirement, and now it's taking off. <laughs> now, now, now it's happening. This is that we have done everything in our power. We have done fertility drugs. We have done the in vitro thing. We've stored eggs. We've had healing oil laid, put on us and we've been prayed for. We have done, we've done everything that is within our power for our whole lives to try to get pregnant. And now... <laughs> now that we've passed through, the, 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 we're too old. Or we're crooked back. We don't even walk. Now we're going to have kids after all this? It was the sarcastic irony of life laugh. But it was also the protection against pain laugh. And that is that this, this is something that has been an issue in their marriage and in their lives, and especially in Sarah, but in Abraham too, for their entire adult lives that they've been barren. Here they've watched Lot. We're going to see Lot in the next chapter. That he's got kids. Every, we don't even know how many kids Lot had, but he had a lot of kids, at least six. And, 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 and everybody around them, they see just springing forth kids like a Pez machine, you know. And, and Sarah, and all that she's tried to do, she hasn't been able to have children. And now, at this point, someone comes out of the blue that she doesn't know who it is, and speaks this word and puts his finger on the most painful spot in Sarah's entire existence and says, you're going to have a child by her. And she hears it. And behind the tears, the thousands of tears that have been cried for years and years and years, the laugh comes out. <laughs> the protection from pain laugh. That I can't even let this in. I can't even let that word penetrate my heart that this is going to happen after so long. And if only that flippant, glib visitor who doesn't know what he's talking about, if only he knows what I've been through in the waiting for this. 
And to say that with such a lack of sensitivity and a lack of concern, <laughs> I'm going to have a child now. Now I'm going to have pleasure when I'm old and waxing old. Well, it says in verse 13 that the Lord said unto Abraham, Wherefore, or why, did Sarah laugh, saying, Surely I of a surety, uh, or shall I of a surety, bear a child which am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Do you doubt, first of all, Sarah, Abram, do you doubt my goodness? Do you doubt my goodness and the fact that you've waited this long and gone through all that you've gone through and felt all the pain that you felt as you've traveled this road up to this point? Do you doubt for one moment that I have withheld something from you because I am not good? And number two, is this beyond my ability? Is anything too hard for me? And notice then God's answer to both of those questions, his goodness and his ability. He says, at the time appointed, I will return unto thee according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. Twice in that verse, you see the word time. And that is the whole entire issue as it relates to Sarah and Abraham, and it's the whole entire issue as it relates to you and I, is it's that there is an appointed time. And there is a time for every purpose under heaven. And whatever purpose God has placed in any one of our lives, there is also a time that's attached to that purpose. And until that appointed time comes, that purpose will seem frustrated. And unfortunately, it's just a fact of the Christian life that there is always a gap of time that exists between purpose and the fulfillment of that purpose. And God says that when the appointed time comes, nothing will keep me from bringing forth that purpose within your life. Because nothing is too hard for me. And he is only good. And so Sarah then denied. So she lies to God, saying, I laugh not, for she was afraid. And he said, nay, but you did laugh. Now, one of the things that personally I, I love about the Lord is his ability to... Uh, correct us or rebuke us or bring discipline into our lives, but at the same time, he's able to do it in such a way that we don't doubt his love for us or his, his faithfulness to us even one little bit. I don't know if you've ever met a person, some people can do that too. You know, I, I've had some people in my life that have been able to rebuke me and just really, really just say, you know, you're way off line but at the same time they're doing it, or immediately after, I know that that person absolutely loves me, that there's not one shred of, of bitterness or anger or dislike at all in anything that they've done. And that's the way God is, is that he has a way of correcting us um, that, that puts us in our place, and we get it, but we never doubt his love, and never doubt for one minute that he's for us, uh, and that, or that he's angry, you know. Uh, I've prayed for things before, where I've gone before God, and I've said, God, I don't know if this is the right thing for me to pray. I don't know if, if this is, like, f is this in bounds? But I got nowhere else to take this. I've got I've to talk to someone about this, God. And if I can't talk to you about this, then where can I go with it? And I've prayed about things before, and I've had God answer that prayer by saying, don't ever ask me that again. <laughs> You're way off base in that, but I'm glad you brought it to me. And I've left that whole experience thinking, never thinking like I got to be careful what I say to God. Never, never at all, because it was always for my good. The thing that I learned through that made me grow. It didn't, it didn't make me afraid of God. It didn't make me, okay, well, I, I can't talk to him about certain, it wasn't it at all. There was a faithfulness and a fathering and a friendship that comes from him. And so God rebukes Sarah here. And thank God that he rebukes us when we need to be rebuked. And so the men rose up from there now. And so now the transition. We move from the first purpose of Abram's visit, which was to announce the birth of Isaac, to now the second purpose of God's visit. And it says that the men rose up from there and they looked toward Sodom.
and Abraham went with them to bring them on the way. So if you can imagine, they walk away from the tent now, and the direction that they are walking is towards Sodom, and Abraham full knows well what direction they are facing. And probably the the spirit uh, of the conversation changed. It probably grew a little bit heavier than it had been thus far. And as they go, verse 17, it says that the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? And this is the whole secondary purpose of God's visit to Abraham is he's about to let him know what's about to happen in the region of Sodom. In Amos chapter 3, verse uh, 6 and 7, It says this, it says, Shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? Shall there be evil in a city and the Lord has not done it? Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he reveals his secret unto his servants, the prophets. And so God's about to do something here, and he's going to let Abram in on it ahead of time, even though it doesn't directly affect Abram at all. I mean, it indirectly affects him because he has a nephew who's there. And that's going to become very evident in just a moment in their conversation. But, but God is letting Abraham in on something that, that he's about to do uh, as he's about to do it. Now, I want, personally in my life, I want God to speak to me. I, I, in fact, in the New Testament, in, in the, the Gospel of John, um, I think it's in John 14, but it might be in John 16, when Jesus was talking about the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit that, that we have. He said that when the Spirit has come, he will show you things to come. Jesus said, I have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. In other words, there was more information. But he says that when the Spirit comes, he will tell you all things. He'll take of mine and he'll show it unto you. That's something I pray for. I say, God, you know, I know your word. I know what you've revealed in the Bible. I know it's complete, that there's no new new truth that's going to come. This is complete, totally. But God, there's things in my life and there's things in my world today that I need your help with. I don't know how to walk through these things. I don't know how to discern them. I look at the world events and the things going on uh, geopolitically and culturally and in all these different sectors, and I don't know what to look at. It's like a big kaleidoscope. you, You look at the picture of things and you start to try to figure it out and then it changes. And you hear all these voices constantly talking at you, saying things. You hear the news. You hear political analysis. You, you know, you see all... But what is true behind all of it? And what's really going on? And and God says that I will show you things to come. And so we pray and we say, God, I want to, I need to know. I've got a family. I've got a ministry. I've got a life. You've put me in the world at such a time as this. What do I do right now? And he wants to show us those things. But I, I find it interesting that as God came to Abram just to tell him something that he was going to do in a city that was somewhat close to where Abraham lived, but that wouldn't really affect him personally, directly. There's a couple of things that made God tell Abram. And that's where it becomes interesting for us. Because why did God tell Abram something that he didn't necessarily need to know? And why will God tell us something that maybe, notice what he says. He says, I'm going to tell Abraham the thing that I do, verse 18, seeing that... Or the reason is that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Number one is this, is that there are successive generations that are going to need this as an example of how I work within a life. He's the pioneer of this pathway of faith, the old path, if you would, And how I deal with Abram will be the way that I deal with others. And so I will speak to him concerning what I will do because it is my will to speak to my servants concerning the things that I will do in the world. And so reason number one is as a precedent. But number two, verse 19, he says, For I know him that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord. Now, this is a real key. And if you've tuned me out, tune back in here, because this is important. God tells Abraham what he's going to do. And part of the reason why is because he knows Abraham will be faithful to tell his kids. And that is a command 
and a precedent and a priority that God gives to us dads. It is so important that we teach our kids the things that God is teaching us. And I believe that God will teach us in proportion to what we teach our children. Some of the most incredible truths that God has revealed to me, nothing new, it's all in the scripture, it's plain as day, but some of the most incredible truths that God has opened my eyes to have come in the times when I'm talking to my kids about spiritual things. Whether it's in devotions when we're together going through chapters of the Bible, or whether they ask a question. One time, my daughter Sarah, she asked me the question. She, she just said, Dad, why is it that people don't receive revelation like John the Apostle did to get the book of Revelation? Why doesn't God do that to, to, to all of us every day? And, and, and she's asked me that question off the cuff, and I just started to answer that question. And after I answered it 40 minutes later... <laughs> <laughs> I, I, Georgia being in the other room she goes that was really good I go I know I'm going to write it down <laughs> and it birthed it birthed the message that I taught here on a Sunday morning it was the message was called the lost language of humility but that that and, and it was, spoke so much to my heart and it was so unplanned it was just the answer to a question and I was like God where did all that come from you know where it came from it came from the question of a nine-year-old little girl and the answer of a father. That's it. And, and as we just communicate to our kids the things that God is teaching us and has taught us, it opens the door for God to give us more. Because when he sees a heart that's willing to expand the kingdom by communicating truth to successive generations, he gives. And he does it to Abram here. God says, I know him. And I know that he will tell his children after him that they might keep the way of the Lord. And God says, that's why I'm going to tell him what I'm doing. And that's true for you and I. God will tell you in proportion to how much you tell. He says, um, verse 20, that the Lord said, because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which has come unto me. And if not, I will know. God says, I'm on my way to Sodom and Gomorrah. And he doesn't give the specifics of what he's going to do. But it's clearly known by Abram that judgment is pending for the lost city of Sodom. Notice that the reason why the judgment is going to come upon Sodom is because their sin is very grievous. Now, when we think of Sodom, and we'll get into this more next week when we see what happens to Lot, who's living in Sodom, but when we think of Sodom, we, we all get a picture in our mind of the sin that God is talking about here, the sin of sodomy, the sin that becomes synonymous with uh, the, the city that, that kind of was the father of, of that, so to speak. But the interesting thing is that when God looked at the city of Sodom and the sin of Sodom, he saw something altogether different than what we think of it to be. In Ezekiel chapter 16, God speaks through the prophet Ezekiel hundreds of years into the future from, from this time, of course, uh, that we see Sodom actually destroyed. And I want you to hear what God says he saw when he looked at Sodom and, and he, the sin of Sodom, because it was different than what you might think. In uh, Ezekiel 16, verse 48, God says this, and he's speaking to Israel, speaking to his own people. He says, as I live, says the Lord God, Sodom, your sister, has not done she nor her daughters as you have done, you and your daughters. In other words, God's looking at Israel and saying, you guys are worse than Sodom at this point. They didn't even do what you've done. And notice then what it is. Verse 49, he says, behold, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. This is the sin of Sodom. Pride, fullness of bread, an abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. That's it. He doesn't go on and say any more. He says, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. Pride, fullness of bread, abundance of idleness, and lack of concern for the poor. 
That's very indicting, isn't it? <laughs> you say, well, wait a minute. Then what, what's the deal? Because when we think of Sodom, that's not what we think of. When we say sodomy, we're not talking about someone who's lifted up in pride and who ate too much, you know, or, or that is idle or doesn't care about poor people. So what's the deal? Here's the deal. Is that when a country or a nation or an individual becomes proud, full, idle, and has no concern for anywhere else, the process and progress of iniquity and sin is going to lead to the worst possible place. And the worst possible place that sin can lead is what was taking place in Sodom. The homosexuality and the just abuse of humanity that was going on in the city of Sodom. But it doesn't start there. Do you know that sin never starts with the extreme? It always starts with the subtle or the seed. The seed of iniquity brings forth the fruit of it. And the root of gross sexual sin or demonic activity always starts way smaller in the heart years before. And sodomy begins with pride, fullness of bread, abundance of idleness, and a lack of concern for the poor. And that's why we must guard our hearts. He says the sin is very great and the cry has come. And so verse 22, it says that the men turned their faces from thence and they went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood yet before the Lord. This is the best snapshot of Abram at this stage of his life, is that when judgment is issuing forth to go into a godless city, Abraham is able to stand right where he is and not have to worry that he's in the wrong place. The best place that you and I can be at any given moment is in the will of God. I had a conversation with uh, someone about a week, maybe two weeks ago now, about the days that we're living in. And they were a Christian person, and they were talking about prepping, talking about storing water and storing food and, uh, you know, and, and different, different things and, and just how they felt, they felt like they, they, they needed to do that. And you know, they were kind of asking my opinion on it. And, and I said, you know, to be honest with you, I've thought that way myself. You know, and for a time I was, uh, you know, trying to, to strategize and, and think that through how I would do that and different things. And I said, but here's the conclusion that I came to. Two things. Number one is I don't really know exactly what to prep for. <laughs> I can't prep for everything, <laughs> you know, so I can guess at what I'll need. Am I going to need water? Am I going to need food? Am I going to need guns and ammo? Like I, I could guess at it, but I don't really know exactly what I'm going to need. So I could be wasting my time because I don't know exactly what to do. And I said, here's number two. And this is the bigger one, the bigger issue. I said, the Bible says that God knows how to deliver those that are godly from times of tribulation. The Bible is full of exhortation that God says, lean and trust in me. He fed Elijah by a stream when there was a time of famine. He sent birds to bring him food. I said, I would be afraid if I was a prepper that God would give me over to my preparation. <laughs> that he would say, okay, well, you prepared. So trust in your resources. I would so much rather take the standard promise than the itemized preparedness. I would rather lean upon him to take care of me in those days than to have to, have to rely upon my ingenuity to try to make it happen myself. And so that's what I choose to do. I lean upon the Lord. I know we're living in tough times and that things could change tomorrow, but I trust in a God who's bigger and I know that I belong to him. And he says, don't worry about tomorrow. And I cannot have a prepper mentality and not worry about tomorrow. It's impossible to do both of those things. So I'll take the command over the preparation. It's blessed that Abraham here can stay right where he is when judgment is pending. I pray that's true for every one of us, that if we were to find out that judgment was coming tomorrow, that we wouldn't have to change anything in our lives. And so Abraham drew near. This is what God always wants. And he said, will you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? 
Abram's heart immediately goes to his nephew and his nephew's family that are living in Sodom. And he knows that his nephew is flaky. He knows that his nephew is carnal. He knows that his nephew isn't right, not walking the way he should be. But he knows that his nephew is saved. And he says, will you destroy the righteous alongside the wicked? Peradventure, or perhaps there be 50 righteous within the city. Will you also destroy and not spare the place for the 50 righteous that are therein? If there's 50 righteous people in in Sodom, God, will you still destroy the city? I know what's going on in Sodom. The news of it has reached, not just to heaven, but it's gotten as far as Mamre too. I'm aware of what's going on in, in Sodom. But if there's 50 righteous there, will you not spare it? That be far from you to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked, that be far from thee, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? It's totally out of your character, God, and everything that I've come to know you to be, to judge righteous people alongside of wicked people. And so what are you going to do if there's righteous people? And so verse 26, the answer from the Lord, the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Now notice that language. He says, I will spare all the place. He does not say, I will simply spare the 50 righteous, that I will insulate them from the trial and the trouble and the fire but I will spare all the place for the sake of the 50 righteous. For me, and I I know this is a little off topic, so I won't diverge, but for me, the pre-wrath view of a rapture happening after the tribulation starts, but before you get to a certain point of it, this refutes that completely. The the mid-trib view that the church is going to go through the first half or the first part of the tribulation when it says that a quarter of the earth is destroyed and the water is turned to blood and all of the place is being destroyed. If the church is here, then that makes what God says here false. Because God says, I will spare all the place for the sake of 50 righteous that dwell therein. Which means that if God is going to judge the world and not judge the righteous alongside the wicked, then he has to do something to remove the righteous before he judges the wicked. So then verse 27, so the Abraham answered and he said, behold, now I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. Perhaps there shall lack five of the 50 righteous. Will you destroy all their city for the lack of five? So now he's bargaining with God. He's the first Jew in the Bible, and he is bargaining with God, nickel and diming, bean counting for souls here. And so he subtracts five. He says, can I get 45? If I get 45, will you destroy? And God said, I will not destroy it if I find 45. Verse 29, and he spoke unto him yet again and said, peradventure there be 40 found there. And he said, I will not do it for 40's sake. And he said unto him, Oh, let the Lord not be angry, and I will speak. Peradventure there shall thirty be found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find thirty there. And he said, Behold now, I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord. Peradventure there shall be twenty found. It's almost like Abraham's like, if I go too low, God's going to say, You know what, forget it, I'm doing it for a (laughs) hundred. You know, he's just creeping up. And he says, I will not destroy it for twenty's sake. And he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak yet but this once. Peradventure, ten be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for ten's sake. And Abram stops there. He could have kept going. And he could have gone down all the way to two, because that's all there was. Actually, no, three. There was three that came out at the end of the day. You know, um, We know that if there was even one, of course, God, God wouldn't, and that's the whole idea. Why does Abraham stop at 10? I believe that Abraham went in his mind, and he counted, and he said, okay, you have Lot, and you have Lot's wife. 
Okay, that's two right there. And then you have Lot has at least two married daughters because we're going to see uh, that, that, that he has sons-in-law, plural. Okay, so he has at least two married daughters. So that's four more because you got them and their spouses. That brings the grand total up to six. He has two virgin daughters. They're the ones that are going to get thrown out. And Well, he offers to throw them out to the men of Sodom, great father. You know, that's two, two more. So that's eight. Um, and, it, and, and the angel says, grab your sons plural. So he has at least two sons. All right. So if you take all of that, it's at least 10. He might add a few more, but Abram gets down to 10. He goes, okay, that covers Lot's family. Um, that's really all I care about in Sodom. <laughs> the rest of them can burn, you know, uh, that I'm sure that wasn't Abram's heart, you know, but he was concerned for Lot and his family. So he gets to 10 and he stops. And it says that the Lord went his way as soon as he had left communing with Abram. Isn't it interesting that Abraham saw it as a bargain? God saw it as communion. That's what God wants in our lives. Sometimes we think that our prayer time is that we're bargaining with God. You know, God, please, if you do this, I'll do this. Or God, you know, and we're, we're bringing our lives to him, pleading as though in some way he's reluctant to give us the things that we need or answer our prayers or spend time with us or, 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 or build our lives the way he wants. Prayer and fellowship with God is not about overcoming God's reluctance. It's about laying hold on his willingness. And what we often see as bargaining, God sees as communing. Abram drew near unto the Lord, exactly what God wanted. And it says that when the communion time ended, that's when God departed. The angels already left. They're already in Sodom at this point. Because this was during the heat of the day. We saw at the beginning of the chapter that this all takes place. If you look at chapter 19, verse 1, it says that there came two angels to Sodom at evening. So the two angels go ahead. God stays behind to talk to Abram. And they have this, this interaction, this communion. Next week, we'll see what happens in Sodom. We'll get a picture of Lot and what it looks like when a Christian says no to God. What happens when a Christian says no to God? And what happens, of course, then to a sinful city like Sodom? That's secondary, not not as paramount to the text. Incredible contrast, great picture of this man, Abram, the old path. We see God deepening his walk. We see revelation being given to him. We see intercession growing and being a part of Abram's life. We see stability and strength. First Peter chapter 5 says that after we have suffered a while, every one of us, he says that the Lord will establish, strengthen and settle us. That's his will. That we move past infancy, that we move past adolescence, and that we come into a stable, steady walk with God. That's what he did with Abram. He pioneered the old path, and God calls us onto that same path. Amen?